0: This is Resonance 104.4 FM. Flippin' marvellous. How are you? Tis I, Nicholas of Hennigan, coming at you with yet another slice of literary London. Yeah, it's been a while. I don't know when you're listening to this, but we've just finished our uh, August uh, summer break, really. Uh, I hope you had a nice time. Did you have a good summer? Mm, Nice, Relaxing? No, I didn't either. Uh, it was, of course, taken up with the glory and the agony that is the Edinburgh International Festival. And uh, there will be more about that later. Oh, yes, there will. Of course there will. I spent the entire summer there worrying about uh, whether anyone's going to turn up and see the play. The play, by the way, was uh, Winston and David. Thank you for asking. Yes. Winston and David, about Winston Churchill and David Lloyd George, actually written by Lloyd George's great-great-grandson, uh, the lovely Robert Lloyd George. Nice chap. And, uh, yeah, we were at the Underbelly uh, for the whole of August. It was one of those situations where, I don't know if you're... I know you you might be a writer. I know we have a lot of writers listening. And um, with plays, it's slightly different because you need to put it in front of an audience. We had two nights at the uh, brilliant Tabard Theatre, which has now reopened, Theatre at the Tabard in Chiswick. Uh, And that seemed to go very well. Thanks, chums, who came. And then we went up to the Edinburgh Festival, which was sort of almost back to normal. Um, The biggest open arts festival in the world. There were three thousand over 3,000 shows in the month of August, uh, all sorts of disciplines, and as did rather well. Yes, thank you. We are going out touring, actually. It's going to be touring, and I think it's going to the USA as well. Gee whiz, holy... Yeah, that's right. Um, but more about that later, because I wanted to kick straight in with an annual event, and I think it's in its... I should have checked, shouldn't I? Eighth year, ninth year, maybe tenth year? And it's from what I think the time's called arguably the most literal, literary rather, <laughs> area of London, if not the world. Yes, I'm talking about Chiswick and the Chiswick Book Festival, organised by Torin Douglas, who's uh, a former journalist and a nice chap. And you will have heard Torin talking many times about the festival on Literary London and uh, on uh, bohemianbritain.com. Of course, our kind of sister podcast. Uh, and if you want to know any more, then just have a flick through, have a flick through me back catalogue, love. Hey, eh? Yes, you'll find quite a lot of talk with Torrin. Um, and they have an annual event, which I really love. And it's called the Local Writers' Festival. And uh, basically, well, local writers, writers from the Chiswick area, as part of the Chiswick Book Festival, are invited along to the George the Fourth Pub, usually. The Boston Room, which is the big function room at the back, which I've put a couple of players on there as well, actually. Nice place. Nice place. Uh, and the idea is that you get two minutes to talk about your book and it's, it's supervised quite closely. And there is a horn that sounds if you go over your two minutes. So I sadly lost the first two writers <laughs> due to, uh, what shall we say, technical difficulties. I forgot to press the button. No, it's the first time in 22 years I've done that. So give me a break. Hmm? Thank you. But we shall join the f- uh, the festival now. Um, and it's in two parts. So uh, enjoy hearing local writers talking about their their loves, their lives, their, their writing. In just two minutes, uh, part one of the Chiswick Book Festival.
1: Lovely. Next up, onto the stage, we have the wonderful, delightful Jo Pratt talking about her cookery books and I think particularly the Flexible Baker. Jo Pratt. <laughs>
2: cookies and desserts. That got your attention, didn't it? That's what I was asked to do. Um, what is it? Do you like eating them or you like baking them? For me, it's both. Um, this book, The Flexible Baker, is my ninth cookbook and fourth in the, ba- flexible, baking se- the flexible series. Um, I've got the flexible vegetarian, pescatarian, family food, and this is the fourth one, um, and really what you might be thinking is, what does flexible mean? Well, it doesn't mean you've got to do the down with dog and whisk your egg whites or do a four roll and roll out the pastry. Don't worry. Basically, it means that each and every recipe, they all have adaptable options, a flexibility for varying tastes, dietary requirements or lifestyle choices, covering everything from gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, egg-free, you name it. There's, it's, it's numerous choices, but at no point in time do I compromise on flavour in any of these recipes. There's over 75 recipes in here, each with a picture that I food-styled myself. Um, they're tried and tested, they're sweet and savoury. Um, it was tested throughout Covid. I don't know if we remember, but there was a bit of a shortage of various ingredients, including flour, eggs, milk, you name it, all the ingredients that we need for baking. However, I managed it, and I got there, and I got the book out. Um, It was an experience, I have to say, but I'm really pleased with the end result. There's a really handy store cupboard um, sort of tips at the front on what you need to have if you want to be a flexible baker. There's a brilliant section at the back which is a dietary index really which allows the reader to see where they can turn to if they need to have a certain dietary requirement that they need to cook for. Um, so for example, you might have a, a friend that you want to cook a gluten free birthday cake for. What do you do? You make a nice espresso and more layer cake. What about a nut free gluten free tray bake for school? Banana and caramel tray bake with a caramel topping. There are so many choices. They are really, really never ending. I'm so proud of this book. It's written, it's modern, it's inspirational, it's a book for now and for the future. Thank you. And please ring the horn! (laughs)
1: Next up, uh, talking about his book of short stories, uh, the thrillers, is uh, the book's called Limb of Satan, and it is Simon Gompertz.
3: I don't want to give too much away. Um, During the lockdown and the the times between the different lockdowns, there was... um, There were strange happenings, odd people uh, turning up, and to be honest, a a degree of exploitation and even bullying. Now, I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about our community here, us and you. So you need to know about this. And uh, uh, luckily, if you read my book of short stories, you will find all the information that you need, and you'll meet the culprits. For instance, Uh, the estate agent who couldn't help uh, stealing from his customers, or the man who blew up a signal box, or the mafia, how it works in Hammersmith, Um, (laughs) or the man who decided to create a museum dedicated solely to knives, and, of course, the people called Limb of Satan. Now, if any of you in those descriptions of the characters recognise yourselves and feel a little bit uncomfortable, rest assured, names have been changed. <laughs> and there's been a bit of development from the truth uh, to the stories. But of course, you know all about storytelling. It's, there's a wavy line between truth and fiction. And I would love it if you would follow me on my wavy line. and. Uh, see how you reacted to the lockdowns. It revealed a lot about us, didn't it? And it was such an important time. had such a profound effect on our lives and on our loved ones. It's an e-book, which means that it's really easy to get and it's really cheap. And I'll put, <laughs> instead of the books over there, I'll put some cards down which tell you how to do it. out from it, it's called
1: Relaxed stance, by the way. That was pretty cool. Owning the stage. (laughs) Owning the stage. (laughs) Well done. Now,
4: considering this is
1: a random order that our speakers are appearing in, we only have two Simons appearing this evening, and the next one is up next. So, talking about his uh, science (laughs) book called Speech, we have Simon Prentice.
5: if you're old enough to remember The Naked Ape by Desmond Morris, which reminds us that, beneath everything, we're all still animals. Well, my book, speech, in the subtitle How Language Made Us Human, tells the other side of that story, focusing on what makes us so different. Just by shuffling a few noises in my mouth, I can take an idea from my head and put it into your head. You can do the same. And before we know it, we're all plugged into a world brain. And no other animal can do that. But the extraordinary thing is, we don't know how we can do it. Even Noam Chomsky doesn't. So my book begins with a radical proposal that perhaps the key to language is not some magic mutation in our heads. but simply the fact that words are digital. Now, I haven't got time to go into that in two minutes. you we have to read the book. But <laughs> language is not just a free lunch. It's, it's maybe our most first and most important form of artificial intelligence. But there are downsides the most damaging of which are the traps of culture, religion, and identity, which are the things that most separate us. So, my book goes into that. Uh, It also talks about science and the the, the, the wonders of science, but also the difficulties and the fact that we're now pushing up against the edge of our planet, but we have no functioning forum to discuss and decide what to do about that. So, who am I to be saying this? Well, I'm, I'm not an academic. But uh, unlike many professors of linguistics, I've spent 40 years at the coalface of language as a translator and interpreter. So I know where the syntax is buried. <laughs> <laughs> but since, um, you don't have to take my word for it, since publishing my book last year, self publishing has had praise from astonishingly people like Richard Dawkins, Steven Pinker, Matt Ridley, John Griffin, and even Desmond Morris himself. So um, i like to see can't all be wrong, but you'll have to decide. So speech,
6: our
1: language (laughs) needs. Two seconds to spare. Ladies and gentlemen at the door, there are some seats over here if you want to take them before the next speaker comes on, or are you going to stay over there? You're going to stay over there. Okay. There's there's an interval coming up fairly soon. You're in the right place for the bar. (laughs) Okay, next. Uh, (laughs) Talking about, I haven't said religion in the last uh, last little speech. uh, We have um, Catherine Pepinster up next talking about her new book, Defenders of the Faith.
4: asked why I wanted to write this book, Defenders of the Faith, about monarchy and religion. I've three reasons. First, the coins in your pocket. Take a look at the head side and you'll see they have Latin acronyms for Elizabeth by the grace of God, Queen, Defender of the Faith. Why is God and being Defender of the Faith so important that they're on our coinage? Second, my 1967 children's encyclopedia with its Way We Live Now section. It all seems like ancient history. But one thing remains the same, the Queen. What's the belief that underpinned her reign of 70 years? And third, the whirligig of politics. Has there ever been such turmoil? Brexit, COVID, Ukraine, the cost of living, and number 10 has become a revolving door. But yesterday, as Boris stepped down and trust stepped up, there was that constant presence, the Queen, receiving them and representing continuity amid the drama. If you watch The Crown, you might assume monarchy is just a soap opera, but it doesn't explain what makes the queen tick. What's the monarchy about? What are the beliefs that underpin our system? You might think the answers lie in politics and the constitution. My book explains they really lie in religion. I start my story with Henry VIII, the first defender of the faith. For hundreds of years, monarchy and religion in this country involved conflict, death, violence, marriage dramas, and divorce. Religion was used to assert national identity. Today, the story of monarchy might not seem so dramatic, but God's still part of the deal. And God will loom over the next coronation, which cannot surely be far off. How much he might still be part of that deal when Charles III is crowned, my book explains. So buy it and get ready for the event of the century.
1: Seven more seconds left. left. <laughs> I mean, you could have, have said buy it another time. <laughs> I'll do it for you. Buy it. Right. Lovely, thank you. Now, Next up, uh, talking about his book Nazis on the Nile is Vivian Kingcross.
7: Nazis on the Nile tells the little known story of how former Nazi and German military leaders arms manufacturers and arms dealers played a secret part in building Egypt's military security state in the Cold War. It shows how German specialists from the Third Reich helped build Egypt's new army and navy along with the country's first rockets, missiles and fighter jets. The book covers events over the final years of King Farouk's reign and Colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser's nearly two decades as Egypt's leader following the 1952 revolution of the Free Officers. It spans the Arab-Israeli wars and includes the Suez Crisis of 1956, which closed the door on the British Empire. The book reveals where thousands of former servants of the Third Reich went after the war. It shows how special forces veterans trained Egypt's irregulars to fight the British in the Suez Canal zone, how they helped the Palestinian fedayeen self-sacrifices to disrupt the new state of Israel, and how German experts took a direct hand in shaping both Egyptian hard and soft power in the Cold War in the Middle East. The book opens up many British government files and official records of the period and delves into secret CIA files released in the United States under the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act of 1998. This has taken uh, me three years to research and write. In an August lead book review, the spectator called Nazis on the Nile a chilling, punch-hacking tale told with great plomb. I have uh, two review copies here, and there are two on the uh,
1: Review copies that are available this evening, but only two. So, if you want one, you better get in there quick. Okay, next up, talking about her coaching book, Tempers of Success, we have Josephine Perry.
8: What is success? Tonight it will be beating that horn. But when I wrote The Ten Pillars of Success, it was the final question I asked my interviewees. Dame Kelly Holmes says it wasn't winning her two Olympic gold medals, it was fulfilling her potential. Casper Berry, he was famous at 16 in 1990 show Biker Grove. He said that wasn't fame, contentment was success for him. Sean Conway, he's an adventurer. He has swum from John's... Land's End to John O'Groats. He said it wasn't about doing the first or the furthest, it was about finding his own path. Damien Hall, he is an amazing record breaker runner, but he said he finds success when he does it in line with his purpose. Bobby Holland Hampton, he is a stuntman. He's doubled for James Bond and for Thor, and he thought success was fame and fortune, until he had spinal surgery and got depression and realised it was about having friends and family that were by his side. Emma Wiggs, she is the current Paralympic world and European para canoe champion. But she says those don't matter to her. What matters is the journey to the start line and enjoying that journey. Maxine Peake, the actress, she thought it was having her name in lights. And then she said it's not. It's about getting to do something you love every day and Sarah Pascoe, the comedian. She said, success is personal. And I agree. So, I invite you tonight, think about what success means to you, and then go over there and buy the 10 pillars of success, (laughs) so you can make it happen. Thank you.
1: And uh, Joe Screen is running a workshop on said Temperance Pillars of Success, this Saturday, Saturday Sunday. Oh yeah, that's what it says, Sunday, 2 p.m. Uh, and there are school spaces available if anyone is inspired. So, uh, next up, talking about their children's book, The Adventures of Captain Bobo, we have Richard Dijkstra and Kay Hutchinson.
6: My father was a ship's captain, my mother worked for the dry dogs, and I worked in the ships every summer as a student. There were always wonderful characters, and there were funny incidents. I know there's a lot of animals coming up, online. Um, and plenty of stories to tell. But believe it or not, Captain Bobo books are based on real life. This is my co-author, Richard, and together we write (coughs) picture books based on a captain, his crew, and their comic adventures on board a famous paddle steamer. Storms and shipwrecks, mishaps and mice, and sweet illustrations bringing everything to life. And the paddle steamer Oh, I'm slightly out of (laughs) (laughs)
3: sync. and upside down.
6: But the paddle steamer is actually based on a real ship. The Waverley, the world's last ocean-going paddle steamer, is actually returning to the Thames and Tower Bridge in just a few weeks' time.
3: So our latest book in the series is actually called London, uh, and it tells the story of with the crew, going on the sightseeing before setting off for an evening cruise but they discover that there's a problem because Tower Bridge won't open and it's left to Emma the apprentice engineer to come up with a plan to save the day. Now the Captain Bobo books have actually been a series on the, on the radio in 2020 they were a 10 part series it was narrated by the late great John Sessions. He absolutely loved the books. I told the BBC at the time that they were like, wonderful little sweet stories, and he hoped that you know life. Why well, couldn't life be like Captain <laughs> The only
5: thing to say is, if you speak Gaelic, they're also available in Gaelic.
1: Year when he asked to come up. <laughs> <laughs> now then, last up before the interval, so get ready to charge your glasses or maybe charge to the bar. Uh, we have talking about his sci fi novel Sons of Soul, Kevin McNally. <laughs>
9: Anthony Smith and Percival Prendergast, two lads from the opposite side of the tracks, and genius graduates of the Edinburgh Space Propulsion Laboratory and Academy, have invented a new space engine that will revolutionise travel and trade between the six colonies and beyond. An invention which will do a great deal of good for humanity and also be very lucrative to boot. A lot of people are interested, but a few do not want to pay. And so en route to their new jobs at the Sabra engineering works on the moon, they find themselves abducted from the Gagarin space station by a glamorous but unscrupulous bounty hunter. She's gorgeous. (laughs) From then on, our two characters, Smith and Prendergast, are involved in a hazardous cat-and-mouse chase across the solar system. Will they become the gazillionaires that Smith wants them to be, or the saviors of humanity that Prendergast wants them to be? Will they be thrown into a Centauran jail? Will they be pressed into forced labor on one of the smaller asteroids? Will they be blasted into space by ruthless space traders, or worst of all, will they be forced to aid and abet the evil battlecruiser commander, Zoltak? And his dastardly planned to take over the Earth. Only space and time will tell. Thank you. Now I've left myself 30 seconds for questions before I get the horn. Thank you very much.
0: Brilliant, yes. What a, what a way to end the first half. Kevin McNally there, of course, the famous actor, who is going to be uh, talking to us soon. I'm going to uh, fix it up in a couple of weeks' time. We're going to have a chat about his new book and, uh, well, himself, really, and being... a Chiswick artist and having appeared in Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, And it was fairly prophetic, as you may imagine, uh, fairly prophetic, some of the books and the comments that were made uh, when this was recorded, which was, of course, before the sad news of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Depending on when you're listening to this, of course, it will all be over now. Um, But uh, the book festival, the Chiswick Book Festival, as a mark of respect decided to dedicate themselves to Her Majesty, uh, which was quite a nice thing to do. Um, And it was quite a strange time, wasn't it? I found myself getting very um, unexpectedly emotional. I was in a pub, oh yes, in the West End, and a Japanese TV crew came up and said to me, after it was after King Charles had given his first speech, two things that struck me. One was it was the first time ever i have been in a busy British pub, and the whole pub stopped talking. And it was silent, and everyone focused on King Charles III. I have to get used to saying that, doing his first speech to the nation on that day. And the second thing was when this Japanese news crew said, "What do you think of it all?" I suddenly started blubbing almost. <laughs> I got really emotional, and I'm not. I don't think it was so much the Queen Elizabeth thing. It was the fact that Queen Elizabeth II and my mum were born on the same year. And my mum only managed 72 years, and of course the Queen did considerably better. Uh, and I don't deny that. I mean, It was fantastic. But it just suddenly, yes, I had this strange wave of emotion. And I gather one or two people have been similarly affected. But hey, we'll keep our uppers stiff, won't we? Mm? Yes, we will. And uh, God bless her. Uh, it was uh, a fantastic reign. And certainly growing up in a council estate in Birmingham in the uh, 60s and 70s, there was very much... Um, sympathy uh for the uh, for the queen um not particularly being a royalist or, or, or you know um either way uh, there was a lot of a lot of uh, appreciation i think it's probably the nicest way of, of putting it so that was part one of the chiswick book festival dedicated to her majesty queen elizabeth ii who passed away during the festival and there will be part two do you know what I might even do it next week. How's about that? Yes. So if you'd like to get in touch, as always, you can get me uh, probably easiest to email radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk. Don't forget to check out bohemianbritain.com, which is now amassing thousands of views, a lot of Americans for some strange reason. So hello, America. So, Bohemianbritain.com. Yeah? Okay. And uh, we'll probably play part two of the Chiswick Writers' book festival, uh, and we'll do that next time. All right? All right. Have a great week. Thank you very much for your company. I'll see you again soon. I'm Nick Hennigan. This is Literary London on Resonance 104.4 FM.